You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is historian and author Gareth Russell. You may recognize his name. His, this is his third appearance on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're very grateful. We are talking with him today about his book. And I told him before we got started that I've never read a book about a house before, but I'm damn glad I did. It's called The Palace. From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 years of British history at Hampton Court. Gareth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me back. You're a brilliant author and a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for your time. I have had the great fortune of of having visited Hampton Court Palace. What is it about the palace that drew you to and convinced you to write a book about it and its inhabitants and visitors? Yeah, great question. I, mean, I suppose it was accident, really. Hampton Court is a very large former palace about 17 miles away from the center of london it's located on a bend in the river it's very beautiful one half of it is 16th century a later half is 17th and 18th century and i it's very famous in england because it's the last big tudor palace and people are fascinated by the tudors but the reason that sort of the genesis of the book was that my agent, who's American, was over visiting and she wanted to see it. And I offered to play tour guide. So I took her through the palace and she said, you know, I think there's a book here because actually you can move through so many rooms and you're mm-hmm. moving through time periods and it's extraordinary. And then 
I actually was initially quite hesitant, if I'm totally honest. I thought, I don't know if there's enough here. And then when I did very basic research, I thought, my goodness, there's actually almost too much here. There's so many <laughs> fantastic histories. And the joy of doing it, it seems the premise of the book is that it's one chapter per room in from a different person's perspective in a different decade, and you move through history with these different rooms. And that just seemed to me a really fun, different way of telling uh, telling a story. Did you find it more difficult to keep the book shorter or mm. more difficult to, and you just alluded to this, more difficult to go, okay, what am I going to write about X? Yeah, it's, it was probably shorter, to be honest. There were stories that I find fascinating, but ultimately were maybe a bit too similar to other ones. And that it has to be, it has to be an enjoyable length of a book. And um, we had an idea in our head, my editor and I, what we'd be aiming for. So initially, I think there were five or six more chapters than there were in the end. And sometimes I had a professor of French history at college. She said, you'll know you know the subject when you know what to leave out. That's when you know that's when you know what is really relevant. So yeah, it was actually, it was, as I said, like an embarrassment of riches trying to figure out if you imagine <clears throat> not to describe myself as a grave robber, but imagine going into Tutankhamun's tomb and you can only take an armful. What do you pick? It is the <laughs> is the closest uh, analogy I can make to that. How, how much did our our good friend, and I'm flattering myself in the podcast, how much did our good friend Tracy Borman? Mm help you with the writing of this book because I, I think she's I honestly think she's a computer. She's phenomenal. Um she she's she's not actually a very good friend and I, I like Tracy a lot. And it was this book that sort of got us talking. So I we had mutual friends and I so the last chapter takes place in 2016 at an event where the then Duchess of Cambridge, she's now since just when I finished writing this book, Elizabeth II was still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, since then, Catherine has obviously become the, the Princess of, of Wales. But Tracy was present at this meeting in 2016 when Kate Middleton, Duchess Catherine, visited the palace. And she very kindly, when I reached out through a mutual friend, she said, yeah, I'll absolutely provide my her memories mm -hmm. of what that day had been like. So she's quoted in the book and in the thanks list, which is slightly strange. Tracy was phenomenal help firstly to have someone who'd been there but also just you know since then she has been such a champion of the book and also i think what was really nice is when she read it she said she gave a, a wonderful quote for it and she said it, it felt as if she was seeing hampton court for the first time and she'd worked there for 15 years so tracy has been as in most things she does phenomenal She's a brilliant historian. She's a wonderful she podcast guest. Uh, Tracy Borman, she's the Joint Chief Curator of Hampton Court Palace. And she said of the book, I have worked at Hampton Court for 15 years, but the author, Gareth Russell, brings the palace to life so vividly and with such a compelling narrative that I often felt like I was walking its corridors and courtyards for the very first time. A beautiful quote. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's you're grateful, obviously, for all quotes, because when you send a book out into the world, it's a ship on a voyage, just waiting to see if the passengers like it. <laughs> and, 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 but to get a quote like that from the joint chief curator of the building you've written about, as well as someone who is in their own right an extraordinary historian and has written about some of the people who feature in the book, it was a very, very special moment for me. Sometimes I think... <clears throat> 
as your career starts, in fact, not just career, life, I think sometimes you have to remind yourself to really take a moment and just be grateful, really savor the moment. And that quote was one of them for me. Hampton Court Palace, so many of the royal palaces of the, the Middle Ages in through the Renaissance and, and Tudor period, they started out as a smaller lodge, then they yeah. get built and built and built until they become, quote unquote, a palace. Uh, what's the genesis of Hampton Court Palace? Why did it become so critical to the time period? That's a great point. So the, the most famous kind of alpha example of that is Versailles, which started out as a small hunting lodge for King Louis Thirteenth, and then his son Louis Fourteenth turned it into what we see today, the sort of colossal royal metropolis, and they call it a palace. But actually, Actually, the Versailles example is perfect because the reason why it happens that they evolve and they, they move from these smaller residences to bigger is that initially they are picked for location. That's what they have a good location. And that means sometimes a, a smaller residence is put there, but the location means that when the royals or anyone else is keen to expand, that is still an attractive residence. And that is what happens with Hampton Court. So as I say, it's on the bend of the river which in Anglo-Saxon times, and in Roman Britain, actually, when we think the first sort of villa was built there, it meant the soil was fertile. So it's it's a very just convenient location to make money. The aristocracy were a rural class. They derived money from land. Then after the fall of Anglo-Saxon England with the Norman invasion in 1066, William the Conqueror takes this manor, Hampton, which literally means the place on the bend of the river, and gives it to one of his cousins, and this is the Saint Valery family, and they hold it for a couple of hundred years, but they are very religious and also warriors. They're crusaders. And so they start leasing land to warrior monks called the Orders of the Knights Hospitalier, who they bring back from one of the crusades. And the Knights Hospitalier turn their bit of Hampton into, as you say, a sort of smaller residence, a manor, but it's really more of a glorified inn. So what they do is, Hampton is in such a nice spot because it's halfway between the capital city of London, and more rural royal palaces. So a lot of well-to-do people traveling between the two stop at Hampton for the night. And they then make, it's like an honesty box in a modern hotel room with your minibar. They, they give gifts to the order on the when they leave. And then the order does a little bit more work and starts leasing out the whole manor on it. And they start they lease it to a man called Giles Dobony, who's Henry VII's sort of the chief official running the royal household, which is the first structure that still survives today is from his tenancy. It's the kitchens, which are I just find them so atmospheric and interesting, which is why the book, uh, the first chapter is there. And then they, after he dies, the lease is transferred to Henry VIII's chief minister, a guy called Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, who's the last great Catholic statesman of English politics on the eve of the Reformation. And although he's technically a tenant, because he's a prince of the church as a cardinal, he's given a very generous lease, whereby he can do whatever he wants to it on a 99-year lease. Obviously, he'll have no legitimate children. But when Wolsey... <laughs> Sorry, it's a Catholic, that made me laugh. Yeah, it's legitimate because two of his <laughs> illegitimate children do live at Hampton Court, Thomas and Dorothy. And actually, for, for Game of Thrones fans, I find quite interesting that at this period, a polite way of giving a name to a bastard was winter, the snow winter. So Thomas and Dorothy Winter live with their uncle, the Cardinal, at, <laughs> at, at, 
Well, he got his, he got his at the end though. So he, he did. Look, Wolsey was Wolsey did nothing by half. He turns it into this palace. There's seven years of massive building on this between 1515 and 1522, and by the end of 1522, it is considered ground enough to host the Habsburg Emperor when he visits England, which is Chapter Two the, the, that visit. But Wolsey, seven years after that, loses royal favor because he can't get Henry VIII's divorce from the Pope as he promised, and Henry takes the tenancy off him and then persuades the monks to give him the lease by saying, if you give me the lease to Hampton Court, I'll give you this priory to St. Mary Magdalene in Essex. And if you haven't heard of it, don't worry, the monks hadn't either. Uh, In terms of a property exchange, it's about as fair (laughs) as someone saying, I really think it would be fair if you give me your first class seat on British Airways in return for this tricycle. It It really is so disproportionately unfair. But that is how it transfers from, it goes from manor to palace and from church to crown. Is it fair to say that the Tudors, perhaps more so the reign of Henry VIII, Uh so we're talking 1485, that's the Tudor period, would that be considered the apogee of palace building in English slash British history? Yes. So that's really, yes, it is in English and British history. It is that period because the Scottish royal family also build a lot in that period. The British Isles are, and actually you see quite a few of the great Irish noble families, like the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds building a lot at that time as well. But that's quite unusual in European history because elsewhere, the great period of palace building is the 17th century. It's afterwards. It kickstarts a bit in England. And then because of the great civil war in the 1640s and the financial tensions surrounding the monarchy at that time, there just aren't new palaces built. So really, the, the high point of palace building is within the Tudor period. And specifically, it's within a kind of 14-year window under Henry VIII from about 1533, when he marries his second wife, Anne Boleyn, who has a great eye for art and architecture, and his death 11 years later in 1547. Anne is executed in 1536, and with her kind of goes the moderation, um, and Henry becomes a quite like fevered builder and pincher of palaces. He is both architect and thief of many. And by the time he dies in 1547, the royal family owned 55 homes. Now, they're not all great palaces. The, the really big ones are Hampton Court, Windsor, Whitehall, Greenwich and Richmond. Or sorry, he give, gives Richmond a divorce settlement to one of his ex-wives. But, <laughs> but, but um, that creates problems for his children, Edward VI, Mary I and Elizabeth I, who are constantly trying to offload some of the medium-sized houses because the upkeep is just draining the royal income. Uh, he, he, Yes, it's, it's the great age of palace building, and his children are left with this colossal bill that they, that they quite resent. But for Hampton Court, what it means is that there's a second big stage. So Anne Boleyn... when she's queen from 1533 to 1536, is the first queen to live there when it's a crown property. So what she has to do is oversee really the 50% 50 increase on the palace because they need to create private wings for the female side of the royal household and private apartments for the king too. Then after she's executed, Henry goes on three more years of refits and refurbs. So it's really, there's constant on and off building 
for about 10 years. And there's 6,500 pages of receipts and modification records for it. So by the time he's finished in 1539, it is one of the grandest and most impressive palaces in the world. And it still has that allure because many of those other palaces that you talk about in this great period of palace building don't survive the 17th century. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author and historian Gareth Russell. We're discussing his new book, The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of British History at Hampton Court. What made Hampton Court special emotionally in the minds of royalty? That's a fascinating question. Different ones have different links to it, but for many of them, it is often a place of refuge. When they are going to Hampton Court, they're often some they're often leaving the plague. A lot of people leave London during the hotter months when disease is at its most rampant, and there's nearly annual epidemics breaking out. So for Hampton Court being in a much cleaner rural environment, for many of the royals and their staff and servants, they they see Hampton Court almost in their minds as a place of refuge. The other thing that I think is interesting is that different you start to see the emotional impact that it has for many of them because i think you can see some monarchs that had unpleasant experiences there and it changes things for them in 1555 queen mary the first went through what we think was probably a phantom pregnancy there and it's interesting that she then cancels plans for christmas there and then seven years later her sister, Queen Elizabeth I, nearly dies of smallpox there. And I didn't know, to, Rob, until I started researching the book, she isn't doesn't stay there again for five more years. So actually, you can see that these places take on huge emotional resonance, whether it's happy memories for many people or distressing ones. I also think that when it's also a great palace for royal families with a large amount of children, because there are smaller sort of mansions and residences in the estate where you can keep the children away from the hustle and bustle and disease of court life, but they're also close enough to regularly see their parents. So actually it can become quite a sort of happy family compound for some royals as well. So there's a variety of reasons why so many royals have such an intense emotional relationship with Hampton Court. Not only in in the UK, but in the United States, those of us who are friends and fans of of this time period in british history we're, we're fascinated by many things but high on the list is a intrigue and then let's talk murders yeah and as my medieval history graduate thesis director called it warring and whoring yeah, 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 there's a lot of that. All um, the above were happening at this palace. Do you have a particular favorite one or two stories of intrigue? Yeah. Because when you mentioned the English Civil War earlier, that popped into my mind. Yeah. One is I, I actually I quite enjoy a story I tell in one of the earlier sections of the book about the boy King Edward VI and his best friend, an Irish nobleman called Barnaby Fitzpatrick. Because you see sort of Barnaby's a bit of a kind of 
uh, I don't want to say frat boy, that's probably too harsh on him, but he's certainly kind of, Barnaby starts to have an eye for the ladies. He's very good looking. He's very charismatic. And you see these very strong Protestant preachers around Edward VI start to go after Barnaby to end the friendship because they're worried he's going to be a corrupting influence. And I quite liked telling the story of that friendship between this young king and his, and his best friend. The English Civil War and Hampton Court's links to it are totally fascinating because the royal family flee there when London goes over to the, the side of Parliament during the Civil War in the 1640s. And then when the royalists lose the Civil War, Charles I is brought back there as a prisoner. So in many ways, the Civil War of the 1640s is birthed and buried at Hampton Court. It, it, there's an extraordinary amount of intrigue and whether or not Charles actually escapes from there and restarts the Civil War. And I came across really interesting evidence from certain anti-monarchists that said he was allowed to escape. We let him escape because we knew that if he did that, we would have a, a reason in the public's mind to go after him even harder. In terms of the whoring, the, the great one is Charles II, who was king from 1660 until 1685. Uh, and that was chapter 16 about his fairly morally repellent mistress, Lady Castlemaine. But I tried to tell all the mistresses' stories, and you have cross-dressing Hortense Mancini, who turns up disguised as a highwayman to escape her husband. And then she has an affair with the king and his married daughter. Nell Gwynne sends candies with laxatives to her rival mistress, Barbara's. It's just the most extraordinary carnival of naughtiness and filth at, at Hampton Court <laughs> during Charles II's time. And that the roulette of sentiment and importance that spins through this place is just extraordinary. Because the one the chapter before is Hampton Court is saved from destruction because our first Republican head of state in this country, Oliver Cromwell, picks it as his weekend house. So you have this very serious theocratic regime in chapter 15, and then you have Charles II's carousel of mistresses in chapter 16. And that's part of the great excitement of doing Hampton Court, because each generation reinvents what the atmosphere of this palace is. And the palace itself, for the book, I think it was really important to say that there was this symbiotic link between the, the building and the people who lived there, and they both equally influenced what was happening, what that kind of atmosphere was like. Was Hampton Court Palace unique? In, in the ways that you just described, or was this something that took place at at the houses and palaces and castles that mm. just happened to be in fashion at the time? I think it's, no, I would say it's unique in terms of the longevity of it. So a lot of the palaces that have this kind of behavior in the Tudor period, they fall apart or they're destroyed during the Civil War. Or you have later ones like Kensington Palace and Buckingham Palace that don't quite have the same open raunchiness as the earlier ones had. And it's the fact that Hampton Court is a royal residence from 1529 until 1760 and a royal property from 1531 until today that you have this kaleidoscope of eras at it. So that's what makes it unique. You have attitudes and periods moving through this palace that other palaces just don't really have. When did, or during which periods, you mentioned the Merry Monarch, Charles II, and his yeah. roulette of yeah. liveliness. <laughs> what would what caused, because you detail this in your book, what caused Hampton Court Palace to fall out of favor? Sure. So there's always a, there's always stories that you hear in history and you get the radar that it's going to be nonsense. I call them Marie Antoinette's cake. And you just know it's going to be an absolutely ridiculous story. 
And I had, I was very much under the impression that the story that is told about Hampton Court was going to be Marie Antoinette's cake. And the story is that in 1760, King George II dies and is succeeded by his grandson, who becomes King George III, who apparently was to make quite a bit of a business of being the last king of places, uh, as he was for you and as he was for the palace. And George allegedly had such a difficult time at Hampton Court living with his grandfather, George II, after his own father's death, that he couldn't, that he hated Hampton Court. And that's why he shut it down as a royal residence. And actually, broadly speaking, that is true. It's not totally true. He didn't, so he didn't hate it enough to let it fall to rack and ruin. But when his father, Prince Frederick, died, the young Prince George was taken into the occasional care of his grandfather, George II, who had a very aggressive temper, really unpleasant man. And I came across a source from one of George III's sons who details that their, his father told him that the reason why he turned against Hampton Court was because one day when he was a teenager, his grandfather, George II, lost his temper so violently that he beat the living daylights out of this out of the teenage grandson, George III. And it was so distressing for him, what, what, what George II did, and it felt so unjust. And bear in mind, Rob, you know, as many of your listeners will know, corporal punishment at the time was not unusual. The act of George II smacking him would not have been considered um, abusive in and of itself. So he must really have beat him for it to be to register as exceptional. Right. So when George III succeeds to the throne in 1760, he decides to retire. He doesn't have any interest in living at Hampton Court. And when he wants to go to the countryside, he goes to the slightly newer palace of Kensington Palace, which at that which is now in London, but at that point was more in the outskirts. And he also buys a mansion in the centre called Buckingham House that he gifts to his German wife, Queen Charlotte, that becomes Buckingham Palace. And he start, and then when the Industrial Revolution happens and the royals do again need a proper countryside residence to get away from the smog, there is interest in reviving an antique palace. But George III's dislike for Hampton Court sees him pick Windsor Castle, which of course many people will have seen from so many things about the British royal family. And the reason why it's, it's integral today is that George III and his son, George IV, put their money into renovating the interiors of this old medieval castle. But George III is an immensely conscientious student of history and takes things like heritage and architecture very seriously. Anyone who has read Andrew Roberts' new biography of him, I think it's published in the States as The Last King of America. It is a, it's a huge book, but it's so thorough. And the stuff in George's education and intellectual interest is fascinating. But George, despite not wanting to live at Hampton Court, did understand it was important to history and heritage. So he sets aside money to make sure it stays in good condition. And he then hits upon an idea that is simple and clever. He divides the interior of former royal apartments into sort of self-contained apartments that he gifts to revolution fleeing cousins or retired royal servants or widowed aristocrats and the deal is you will pay next or no rent for this little set of rooms you're given at hampton court but it's your job to maintain them and heat them which is crucial it keeps out the damp so thanks to george iii's policy that's called the grace and favor system that continues right the way through the time of elizabeth ii hampton court becomes this fabulously eccentric compound of Georgian and Victorian geniuses and blue bloods all living in this sort of like a cross between a country club 
and a very gen i mean it's and i don't know what the other way to describe it would be country club and retirement home all rolled <laughs> into one and that's one of the chapters because it, it's just fascinating who lived there so George III does that to the interior. He opens the gardens to the public for the first time. And this policy is then extended by his granddaughter, Queen Victoria, early in her reign, when she starts to open up bits of the big public rooms, like the chapel and the Great Hall, with the result that Hampton Court under Victoria starts and very quickly becomes a massive tourist attraction. So by the, the middle of Victoria's time as Queen, about 200,000 visitors are going to Hampton Court every year, helped, of course, by the invention and spread of the railways. So that, in a, in a nutshell, is how it goes from palace to res- residence to museum. Was Hampton Court the first quote-unquote museum? Now, when you go over there, there's yeah. obviously the Royal Collection Trust and, and wow. historic royal palaces, and they're all amazingly done, so beautifully yeah. done. But was this starting the start of the trend and how beneficial has this trend, if that's the right term, been in keeping these places alive? Because I can't yeah. imagine how much it cost. It would cost out of, out of a monarch's pocket to keep these things right. up and running. It's also, yes, absolutely. It also means that it justifies... Sometimes it, it can be tricky for them. Recently, with the big refurbishment of Buckingham Palace, the reason why they had to ask for so much money is that they have to do the whole thing because tourists are walking through so much of it. So there, there becomes a health and safety component. But broadly speaking, it has been hugely beneficial. Hampton Court was the first major one. You could pay caretakers beforehand to show you around when the royals weren't there. But as a museum, Hampton Court was the first time this was really tried. And I think people were shocked at the success of it. Initially, there was no question of opening the royal homes that were still residences. It, it, it would only be ones like this in the Tower of London that had retired the residential programs. It Then it starts to expand bit by bit. So really the only one today that doesn't do it is St. James's Palace in London, partly because it is still a working palace. And actually, many things, many military uh, organizations have headquarters there, so they can't really do that. But what it does for for also British history in general, which is extraordinary, is that it gives a lot of people a vested interest in it in massive, I mean, they, they draw it, they still draw in huge crowds today. Hampton Court is then handed over in the time of Elizabeth II to a charity called HRP or Historic Royal Palaces that is works in partnership with the Crown, but is given total freedom about the exhibitions they mount and how they raise their money. So Hampton Court, the Tower of London, a former banqueting house at uh, that in Whitehall, mm-hmm. Kew Palace, and then later places like Kensington Palace and Hillsborough Castle, which is the royal family's official residence in Northern Ireland, are incorporated into it. And some of them do still have residential quarters. So you actually see the program expand and expand. And part of that, Rob, is just that, as many of your listeners will know just to look at these palaces, they were built at a time when there was no industrialization of labor. So you needed massive staffs to for their upkeep, for all of it. And those palaces have survived, but that work model has not. So they physically are, they're just too big for their purpose anymore. So actually what Hampton Court really did was it, tra- it trailed or trailblazed the way for other palaces 
surviving even architecturally and logistically by becoming museums or tourist attractions. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today, his third visit to the Leaders and Legends podcast, and we're very grateful, is award-winning historian Gareth Russell. We're discussing his new book, The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of British History at Hampton Court. If you could have a an evening with any of the occupants of the palace, whom would you choose? I probably, out of sheer curiosity, would pick Anne Boleyn to to see what the what was the impact of this charisma, what was the fuss about. Uh, I also think I've often said Anne Boleyn, I think, is the Tudor equivalent of a martini. I think classy but sharp, and so shaken, that, not stirred. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yes, I think probably Anne Boleyn, but. If I wanted to have a Lord Harvey, this 18th century nobleman who I write about in the third section, who was just a sort of horrible, but apparently very funny dinner guest. And his was one of the last sources I find his scorchingly cruel memoirs of his time at Hampton Court that did make me laugh out loud. But then I, I feel like he might turn on me. So maybe I'll leave <laughs> I'll leave Lord Harvey. Yeah, I would probably say Anne Boleyn. But then there are other people that you think, like James I, wife Anne of Denmark. I think would have been fascinating as well. And then I suppose some, maybe Charles II actually as well, because I think, again, I'm inter- as with Anne Boleyn, I'm interested by charisma. I'm interested by what it does. And that it, and part of the difficulty and the, the joy when you write about people like Anne Boleyn or uh, Charles II or Nell Gwynne, that just seem to have charisma seeping out of their fingertips is that you can get the impression from other how other people write about them. But it is something that's indefinable until you see it in person. So I, I'd be fascinated by, say, Anne Boleyn and Charles II. If you could witness any event that took place mm. at Hampton Court, which one would you choose? This is not a moment of high historical interest, but I just think the production values sound fantastic. And also, we can't see this form of entertainment anymore because by its nature, it was transient. There was a thing called a mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, at the Stuart Court that was part propaganda, part high camp musical, part theatre, and which the royals would often perform in it. And in 1604, in the Great Hall, James I's wife, Anna of Denmark, performs in one called The Vision of the Twelve Goddesses. And the court gathered into the Great Hall. All the windows are covered. They have built a set that involves moving clouds <laughs> running around the Great Hall. All the page boys are lined up in silver jackets with jewellery sewn into it. So when they hold the torches up for the entrance, everything glitters around them. And then wearing the recycled state gowns of Elizabeth I, the cast led by the new queen descend and perform this form of theatre that's just gone forever. And I think it sounds spectacular. It was such a lucky source to find Rob when you find the details of exactly where everyone was and what they saw. And so, yeah, that I would just selfishly love to see. The, the, the other reason why I would love to see something that's of artistic 
and visual fascination, but not of high historic importance is, and just too much of a meddler. And I think if it was anything really important, I, I don't think I could keep my mouth shut. So I'm conscious of the butterfly effect. So we'll stick with the vision of the 12 goddesses in 1604. Perhaps the, the, the most impactful historic decision, and you correct me, please, uh, yeah. taken at the palace was the decision of, of Charles the, the first to flee. Mm, yeah. Yeah. If not that, which decision do you think it's had hard. most historic impact, historical impact? It's it's hard to, to 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 trump that one, I think, Rob, you're right. So in 1647, Charles I has lost the first civil war in England and he's been held under very genteel house arrest uh, at Hampton Court. And I go into all the I, I probably went into this with slightly more admiration for Charles I than I came out. I, I, he had many extraordinarily fine qualities that I don't think he often gets credit for. He was—he had such a horror of bullying, and he really stepped in. He—he—he he, he could smell a bully at, at ten paces, and and he was a wonderful husband and father. And should uh, never and also, have been king, for lack yeah, of a better I think, term. Yeah, I think. Yeah, was not I first think, in line to the throne. Yeah, there are plenty of second in lines who do sometimes do a better job, but um, than others that don't. Um, yeah, with <laughs> Charles Henry the Eighth, for example, Henry the Eighth is one of the ones who did not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, Charles. It, it's interesting because I think there were some qualities there that were perfectly suited to being king, but but it was not. Charles would have been a wonderful king of France. He would have been a fantastic king of France, or possibly even of Spain. The problem was that he just was not a king that was suited to limited monarchy. And that wasn't in vogue in the rest of Europe at the time. It was a time of growing absolutism and centralization, but not in England. And he disastrously refused to accept that. And the decision, he sort of, so he comes back at the end of the first um, civil war, and they're negotiating him and parliament what the future will look like. And certainly, I don't. I don't think that Charles was unreasonable in feeling that his room for maneuver and negotiation was limited by being kept prisoner. But the civil war he had just lost had was the bloodiest to this day. It remains the bloodiest percentage wise of the English and Welsh population. And I do think he was manipulated a bit by his enemies. But ultimately, the decision to run away under cover of darkness, which I describe in chapter fourteen. And to restart the war is one that has to rest on his head. And I think he, Charles was not a stupid man. He has to have had, a, he has to have known what the potential human cost of this decision would be. And again, as he'd done throughout his time, Charles chose principle over pragmatism or hubris over humanity because he chose to prioritize what he believed the right political solution would be over potentially many more deaths. And that is something that ultimately does lead to a second civil war. It does lead to the downfall of the monarchy, the exile of his family and his execution, and 11 years of Republican rule that has a catastrophic impact on Ireland and Scotland. So in many ways, that decision to flee in 1647 has what has consequences that I would argue are still being felt in some parts of Ireland today. So yes, I would completely agree that of all the decisions taken in Hampton Court, Charles I's decision to leave in 47 is definitely the one, the primary one. Please articulate why why you believe the impact on 
Ireland and Scotland yeah. is not only dispositive, but certainly, de- I mean, I hate to say deadly and detrimental. It is deadly. It is deadly. Charles, one thing I, one thing I don't think Charles ever gets credit for to, in his defense is that he was a, he was someone who, partly under the influence of his wife, who was a French Catholic princess, had tried to moderate the religious tensions between Protestants and Catholics in his time as, as King of Ireland. Despite the fact that many Irish Catholics were ambivalent about the Stuarts, they did not want, first of all, they didn't want to be told that they were going to become a republic by England. That was not what they wanted. Also, Henrietta Maria was popular. You have to remember that at this point, the English royals could still marry Catholics. So actually often, the Queen's consort, the wives of the kings, were much more popular in Ireland because they were Catholics. The disaster that, you know, in... Charles couldn't have known this. He wasn't. A, he wasn't a prophet. But there were two major organizations in Ireland during his during the Civil War period. One was called the Irish Catholic Confederation. That was the Catholic elite that wanted to. That was okay in keeping the monarchy, but they wanted to rejig it so that the king's Protestant faith was incidental and Catholicism remained primary in Ireland. And Irish royalists who were tended to be Protestants, and they allied in the face of the civil war together, the Irish Royalists and the Irish Catholic Confederation, because they realize that if the monarchy falls, it might be replaced by a Puritan Republic, which for both the Royalists and the Catholics is a nightmare scenario. And when Charles I falls and the Second Civil War restarts, Ireland becomes a hotbed of anti- let's call it anti-republic or anti-Puritan sentiment. And so when the monarchy collapses and falls in England, the new leader of the Republican movement, Oliver Cromwell, takes 12,000 soldiers over to Ireland to crush this alliance between the Royalists and the Catholic Confederation. He ransacks the town of Drogheda and lies about how many people died there. He takes many other towns and he then... And the, and he and it's very clear if you read the sources that even at the time people are horrified by what he's done. He's gone so far beyond the rules of war. Many places have had terrible wars happen to them and they recover. What Cromwell then does is that he embarks upon a geographical survey of Ireland called the Hibernia Delinatio, or the Down Survey, it's sometimes called, where they draw these beautiful maps that show exactly who owns all the land in Ireland, which means the new English Republic knows who to take it from. And under Cromwell's leadership, two-thirds of all the land in Ireland is taken off Irish Catholics and given to Cromwellian supporters. And Irish Catholics, particularly the old Catholic elite, are pushed into the western province of Connacht that does that has the worst soil. And Cromwell does makes it so difficult to ever undo this because then to undo it, you would be it's just it's darkly genius what he does. And the consequences of that the level of resentment that grows up between Protestants and Catholics um, and between different provinces in Ireland lasts for centuries after he's dead. And in many ways, you could say it is still the legacy of 1649 and 1653 can still be felt in parts of Ireland today. So it's it's very difficult. And to be absolutely clear, I am not blaming Charles I, but that is Cromwell who did that. But Charles I knew who was standing. and Charles I knew his enemies. He knew who they were. He had already seen what they had done to Scottish and Irish royalists. Things, for instance, if you took a royalist garrison during the Civil War, 
if they surrendered, English royalist soldiers would be spared by the parliamentarian soldiers. The Irish ones would not. If they took a ship and they found Irish royalists on board, men or women, they'd throw them overboard. Like he knew what was coming and he still decided to gamble at all. And so that's where I think Charles's decision ultimately was catastrophic, though to be very clear, the fault lies with the Republic that came after him. Uh, go ahead. But but whose creation he unintentionally enabled. I was thinking of Louis the Sixteenth as I read about the the fleeing of of Charles the yeah. First and these desperate acts. Did, did you find it? Maybe I'm thinking of it in a judgmental way, but we're not talking about the levelers here. We're talking about the Puritans, but I always find it somewhat ironic, hypocritical that Cromwell lives in these mansions and these palaces. Much like Stalin and his dachas several hundred years later, it seems hypocritical. That's the only word I can think of. Am I off base? No, not totally. I think there are people at the time who think that really, because it's not just Hampton Court. He also takes the Palace of Whitehall, which was the largest in Europe. Partly there is a different attitude towards status in the 17th century. So people do want him to seem like the leader of a great country, even though it's a republic and the palaces have a role to play in that. But yes, there are certainly royalists think it's they just have a field day with making fun of this. <laughs> Thank goodness she saved us from a monarchy that overtaxed and lived in fine palaces. Cromwell lives in fine palaces and taxes even more than the monarchy did. The royalists are thrilled because it is it's a public relations own goal uh, for the republic. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it is hypocritical. It is definitely hypocritical. It saves Hampton Court. But there's no doubt, ideologically, it is, it's an ill-fitting glove, I would say. Americans uh, tend to be familiar with, with Tudor architecture. How would you define the Hampton Court Palace's architectural style? And are there any other palaces in, in England that ape it? No, they're none. So there, the, the style is a perfect split of Tudor and Baroque. So in the, and you actually, when you walk through it, you walk down the haunted gallery that's said to be haunted by the ghost of Henry VIII's fifth wife. And if her ghost is still there, she'll be very confused when she reaches the end of the corridor, because all of a sudden you step from a, a dark wooden panel Tudor room into this sort of fantastically over-the-top Baroque Rococo uh, staircase. So what happened in the 1680s was that the, the private wing, the east and south-facing wing that had been built in around Anne Boleyn's time, wasn't in very good repair. And William III and his wife Mary II decide to to tear down the dilapidated part and rebuild it as a middle finger to their enemy, Louis XIV at Versailles. So you have, but they run out of money before they can finish the rest of it. So you have a half a Tudor palace giving way to an English version of Versailles, which is just, from my perspective, wonderful. And I do, I think sometimes people miss the Baroque wing, don't. It's always slightly less busy and it is absolutely fascinating. You can see these colossal, throne rooms and drawing rooms and guards rooms, then you go downstairs and you see the developing idea of privacy. Small, normal-sized 
studies for William III or Queen Caroline's bathroom, normal size dining rooms and sitting rooms and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just wonderful. I love the Baroque wing. Nobody else does. And I, when I was there with some of the curators, I said, Oh, I love the Baroque wing. And they said, no one has ever said that because I think everyone still wants it to be totally chiller, but those different architectural styles remind you just how much history Hampton Court has been present for. It's not just the Tudors. The entire Baroque period should be celebrated from A to Z, uh, whether it's a, a palace or music or art. Love it. Yeah. It's, it, and, and they do a really good job with curating it because they have set up card tables and the outline of old clothes. It's really well done. And Hampton Court is a fantastically curated place. It's wonderful. We have a few minutes left with historian and author Gareth Russell. We're discussing his new book. It's incredibly readable. It's fun. It's funny. It's detailed. The amount of research is... I shake my head at you historians who seem to be able to find every comma and semicolon in the pipe rolls or the architectural digest of the time. And the book is called The Palace. From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of British History at Hampton Court. I read, and maybe this is wrong, one of those let-them-eat-cake historical facts, that Britain had running water, indoor plumbing during the Roman period, yeah, and then did not have it again until the Victorian period. No, that's not true. So they did have it in the, again, the who is they? So the upper classes had it in the Roman period, to the best of my knowledge. The, there would be the, the Roman plumbing was far better than the Middle Ages, though. There would be a lot of middle class isn't technically the right term, but you know what Pre, I'm saying. For like yeah, a yeah. Of the term. So how but did no, Hampton the, Court? How did Court, court embrace it technology? Boleyn, uh, Hampton Court got it because Anne Boleyn did not want a cold bath. So she, <laughs> I think she Anne Boleyn could really. She could live in the cozy side of Sybaritic, I think. And so she, when her bathroom was built, she asked, asked, <laughs> insisted that her bathroom would be surrounded. It would have so walls, the bath would be at the, um, near one of the walls. And there would be tap faucets, sorry, coming through, uh, that provided hot and cold running water. And the hot water was heated on the other side, brought up and heated by servants and then pumped through the faucets into her bathroom. So that's the first time we see full plumbing. They also have a very um, complex system of sluices and flowing water to deal with the toilet situation, the kind of the, the, the communal toilets. The first time that really full proper plumbing is put in terms of like really making it up, what we would recognize as close to indoor plumbing is Charles I. And his wife, Henrietta Maria, who, like Anne Boleyn, is educated in France, grows <laughs> up in France. So it's possible that maybe they bring a certain Parisian chic to the whole thing. But yeah, no, there is. There are ta- there are working faucets at Hampton Court in the 1530s, and then the- it is extended quite substantially. And they, by the way, the other royals maintain it. So Mary I and Elizabeth I, we know, maintain the plumbing. And then Charles I and Henrietta Maria expanded. So no, not true. That there was none until the Victorian period. But yes, it did take a drop after Roman Britain. Any famous royal weddings take place? Any famous royal beheadings take place? No royal beheadings. Um, they don't like to, what, however you want to put it, where they eat. Uh, <laughs> they send those to fortresses. 
there are there is a famous wedding that takes place there in 1543, Henry VIII's last. He gets married to his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, who's the country's first openly Protestant queen as well. So it's end of an era for Henry VIII, and the start of a deeply unpleasant one for poor Catherine Parr. But yes, the Henry VIII's, it's also, I think, to the best of my knowledge, let's see, Greenwich, Michael. Yes, it is the only place where you can see where one of Henry VIII's weddings took place. Last question for Gareth Russell. If you could ask Hampton Court Palace a question, what would you ask her? Oh, what are the memories when you're asleep? Because I think I've walked through it at night and you do feel that there's so much memory that's flowing around. Either that or when were you at your most useful? That would be interesting to see. When did the palace think it was at the peak of its importance? Do you think Hampton Court Palace is haunted? I don't really believe in... If you ask me, do I believe there's like Purcell's trap <laughs> reliving a Groundhog Day of their worst moment? No, I don't. Certainly there are... But there have been a couple of moments I've been there where I felt something unusual. But that could be because... I've spent years researching it. You know, I I don't know. I do, there is a very certain atmosphere there. And the, the first, the opening quote of the book is from an Irish aristocrat called Elizabeth Baum. And she's writing about her home, Baum's court, but I thought it was perfect for Hampton Court. And it's with each death, the air of the place had thickened. And I think there, the air is thick at Hampton Court, whatever that means. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today, Gareth Russell, author of The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of British History at Hampton Court. If you've not been to Hampton Court, please go. It's endlessly interesting. And please pick up a copy of Gareth's book. It's funny. It's gossipy. But it's great history. As always, your writing is terrific, Gareth. Thank you oh, very thank much. You, very kind. Thank you for coming thank you on for the podcast. Me. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 